Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, we're switching things up a bit by bringing on my husband and business partner, Levi Hildebrand, to answer your questions about jealousy and TikTok, coming out to your partner after 11 years of marriage, and setting boundaries before your first sexual experience with someone new. Like, is asking someone whether or not they get an abortion, is that crossing a line, or is that just strong communication? We also talk about the evolution of our relationship some of our learning from the world of ethical non-monogamy, and what it's really like being married to a sexual health educator. But first, today in sex. The newest season of Big Mouth came out on Netflix on November 5th, and Levi and I have already watched the entire season. I like to think of it as a mix of work and pleasure, and this season was quite something. You know, in some ways, it kind of feels like the newest season of sex education, right? It still has the same characters you love, tons of that great info about sex, but some of the the sparkle has gone from the first few seasons. It went on some dark and strange tangents, but my goodness, I loved and was also terrified by the hate worms. And the Christmas special in particular was also very, very special. But what I really loved about this season was getting to see more of Leah's character, and not just because she has a wonderful name. Leah is around 16 or 17 years old, and we follow her journey on having sex for the first time. Of course, on the show, they talk about it as her virginity, uh, a term that I'm not a fan of, and instead like to use sexual debut. But the conversation with both of her parents was so poignant and honest. When Levi and I have kids, I would love if we were like the Birch family, with maybe just slightly less jokes about eating pussy, but only slightly. So here's a brief clip of Leah's parents talking to each other about how terrified they are that their daughter is having sex for the first time. Okay, I get it. I've heard you. You don't love me anymore. You want a divorce. That's fine. All I ask is 100% custody of you. I don't want a divorce, Elliot. I just want to have a real conversation about our daughter having sex. Oh, you want a real conversation, do you? Yes, I do. Well, here's what I think. Leah's ready to have sex when Leah says she's ready to have sex because we made Leah ready to have sex when Leah's ready to have sex. I know, but you need to let me have my feelings about it. I'm yelling, but I'm actually very sorry about that. And honestly, I'm a little nervous about it, too. How would I know that if we don't talk about it? Oh, God. It feels like just yesterday she was five years old and we were explaining that what she was calling her vagina was actually her vulva. I know it's hard, but do you know how sexy you are when you're honest with me? I am. Can I please adore the vagina now? No. Because I'm gonna ATP. You mean adore the penis? No. Annihilate it. (gasps) (sighs) Now, for many of us, our first sexual experiences aren't that great. And a big part of that is because we aren't given the skills and the language to talk about our boundaries, about what we are excited to explore, and to really center our pleasure in that experience. And I'd love to imagine that if we lived in a world where we were taught that our first sexual experience didn't have to be rushed in someone's basement or in the back of a car, but rather about experiencing pleasure with another person and being curious about our bodies and what might feel good. What if we felt empowered going into our first sexual experiences instead of terrified and wanting to get it all over with? 
So thank you, Big Mouth, for articulating both the fear and the excitement of our sexual debuts. And now Levi and I are going to tackle your questions as well as do a bit of a deep dive into our relationship. We have been together for almost eight years now, and it has been quite a journey uh, going through most of our 20s together. We're hoping to showcase more of our relationship and honestly represent what communication and support looks like in our marriage over on our YouTube channel, Levi and Leah. So feel free to go check that out if you haven't already. And here is my interview with Levi. So Levi, I have a very important question to start us off. Uh, What was the last video you watched on TikTok? The last video that I watched on TikTok, uh, I believe it was something about the flooding in Abbotsford, which is a local community nearest to us. But I feel like you're wanting something a little more titillating than that. (laughs) No, I'm just I'm genuinely curious because I get a lot of questions. People being like, my boyfriend watches these things on TikTok. And it's like, you know, even when I look at my TikTok and you look at yours, it's very different types of TikTok. Okay, let me rephrase. What's the normal kind of content that you get on your TikTok? I get videos of uh, trucks being (laughs) driven uh, on dirt roads and in the snow, Um, mountain biking videos, uh, snowboarding videos, and then, of course, uh, women mostly in various mm-hmm. states of undress. Mm-hmm. It was oh, goodness. prime TikTok content. So that's the kind of things you see mm-hmm. on your TikTok. Okay. Well, today I'm going to ask you a few questions that I have, and we're going to have a conversation about our relationship, talking about you know what it's like being married to a sexual health educator, to a mm, podcaster. Okay. I kind of okay. want to know what that's been like. Have you, do you have a spicier sex life now? Uh, Wow. Okay. (laughs) Good question. Um, But I'm also going to, yeah, ask you some questions that people have sent into the podcast. Uh, That first one, because I wanted to talk about TikTok, I'm going to read it to you now. Uh, Someone sent this to me on Instagram and said, my boyfriend and I have been together for five years and usually I'm not the jealous type, but he has TikTok and recently I've been getting jealous of the girls he looks at on there. Uh, Most of them are skinny girls wearing next to nothing. I know he would never cheat, but is it normal for men to stare at other girls like that? So what do you think as a male who has TikTok? What's what's your advice for this person? Uh, Well, I think partly they have to understand that TikTok is a a platform based on an algorithm that uh, basically dictates what you should watch. Um, It's predictive. So... He entered his information, which was, I'm a male and I live in this part of the world. And perhaps he logged in with another social media account. And so they gathered a whole bunch of information based on his preferences, based on what he consumes online. And what he consumes online is probably not very emblematic of like real life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a sensationalized version of reality. And uh, yeah, I've noticed that like my feed steers me in a particular direction right? because there's societal norms and standards in place that like are constantly being reinforced. So, you know, I might be, you know, very diverse in my interests, but get pigeonholed into a certain thing because I watched a certain type of content a few times. Um, So, you know, I don't think it's necessarily that he's specifically fantasizing about a different body type, uh, than you per se, but um, 
that's just kind of what the internet does is like, you know, unless you go out of your way to search for a specific type of thing and then create that, mm-hmm. you're going to get fed what the algorithm believes everyone is into. Right. Well, and I wonder about this jealousy piece too, where there's a difference between walking down the street and openly ogling someone, which again, listeners, we we won't do. Like mm. be a regular person and you can check someone out subtly and not make them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh but the difference is when it's online, you're able to kind of view it in a way that maybe you're unencumbered or unhindered in the way that you're True. watching it, right? Yeah. So is it a way to not necessarily like kind of live that fantasy in a way that you're not – you wouldn't do that in real life? For sure. Yeah, you would never go out and, you know, like spend – I don't know, uh, tons of time looking through girls' profiles on TikTok and Instagram um, in real life. Um, but yeah, like it's it's a it's not real life. It, mm-hmm. it, it's it's you're you're existing in a digital reality in which you know these women in particular are incentivized to uh, you know perform for the male gaze, and so they wear certain things because it gets more views, mm-hmm. and they do certain things because it gets more views. Is that representative of their personality? Is that representative of their values? Does that express a nuance of their character and personality? Absolutely not. It's it's a thirst trap. Mm-hmm. This is why it's called that. Is because it's a trap. It's not real. Yeah. It's it's a fake illusion that they're creating for an algorithm that works. Sadly, well, it's an algorithm that exists in a patriarchal world and system, right? So exactly. you are you are being valued constantly for how men are seeing you and and I think a big part of that as well is also women seeing each other as the enemy as a competition mm-hmm. as opposed to you know seeing each other as fully fledged human beings True. so i wonder if that's part of it too like i think particularly online we know this firsthand you can share your life or you know your body or whichever else in different ways and it becomes idealized in some ways but that's not the reality of it. Mm. So I don't know, I guess I'm thinking about for this listener, uh, like having an honest conversation with your partner about like, oh, this makes me feel kind of uncomfortable. But unfortunately, this is quite a large topic that you're that you're digging into. It's going to take some, un- some, yeah. some learning of your own uh, sense of self and self-worth and knowing that the more that we consume content that has, you know, people sharing their bodies and their, their lifestyles, the more we feel shitty about ourselves. Yeah, I actually specifically deleted and unfollowed all of the models that I was following on Instagram like a couple of years ago. And I, I did it specifically just because it, it was just so um, mind warping. Like mm-hmm. it, it just like kind of eats away at, at what reality seems like. And I was living with a bunch of guys at the time and it was just like, it was so clear that it, it was just not getting us anywhere. Like when you're, you know, sitting on the couch feeling like a piece of shit and you're just scrolling through images of these like incredibly beautiful airbrushed models on beaches and in boudoir shoots. It's like, how how are you supposed to like understand and respect and appreciate like the nuances and realities of a human connection with another person like i i just i don't know i think it's so detrimental to to like think 
and and consume this moderated content on a regular basis, especially when we all seek real human connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of going online is trying to replace in some ways. And I think especially in terms of pandemics and things like that, mm -hmm. when we are receiving less and less of human to human connection in real life, how do we seek that out? Uh, I'm wondering too, though, so if people spend so much time online consuming this content of like other people and feeling maybe kind of shitty about that, is that the same sort of thing with porn? Like, do you think porn oh, and sure. TikTok is same, same, or is one worse than the other? Like, what? Yeah, I would say p porn is way worse because, like, there's a very low probability that the person who you just met on Tinder is willing uh, to let you fist them or, you know, vice versa. Like, it, yeah. you you create this, like, absolutely absurd uh, level of, uh, I guess it's like, like a sub-niche interest, like, I don't know. The internet's brilliant for bringing people together who have common interests, but like it also like manifests things that like wouldn't have existed otherwise. And porn is a perfect place for like one small seed of curiosity to get blown into this like absolutely massive weird subgenre that is more often than not violent and pretty grotesque mm -hmm. and so it's like cool great we're all just seeing this as real life because less and less people statistically are having sex from what i recall and uh you know they're watching more content online than ever so you know how does this warp and distort our perspective of what intimate relationships look like i don't know if people are necessarily having well, they are like there is some studies saying that like younger people are having less sex and there's all this worry about it. But mm -hmm. then also that younger people are like delaying their sexual debut. So they're older and older at the time that they right. have their first kind of sexual experience. Mm. Uh, but if you have not to say filled that void, like, if, but if you filled that time of not having human human sexual connection, are you filling that with being on social media, watching porn, oh. watching things like that and feeling like that's a substitute? I think that's I think that's where the problem lies. Hmm. So has your porn use decreased the more sexually aware you have become? Yeah. Okay, don't tell, talk to me about that. <laughs> Unpack that for me. Uh, well, I definitely watched more porn when I was single, like when I was on my own. Um, but I I also think i like i i didn't grow up with television i didn't have a lot of digital content in my life and ironically now i create digital content online and i spend literally all day every day online um but that's i am kind of sensitive to the impact that it has on my my mental well-being like i'm pretty i have a low tolerance i think for just like general consumption when when it comes to creating and like working, uh, I'll spend all day on the computer. But like, if we sit in front of the computer and and are on in front of the TV and we watch TV for three hours, I feel like shit after. Like mm -hmm. I'm just like tired by that experience. And um, porn just kind of like loses its appeal for me pretty quickly because I just feel terrible mm -hmm. after a certain amount of time. Like it's so empty. And I'm pretty sensitive, so. No. So uh, what I'm also interested about is I, th I think because we share so much of our relationship online as mm. well, and you and I have been on journeys together, but also separately, you know, in terms of our careers and everything. And I would say definitely over the last 
few years, particularly for me, my own sexual awareness and blossoming and, uh, you know, just sense of my own sexual self has really mm. come into being. But I'm, you know, I have an internal understanding of that. But what has that been like for you, like your sexual journey throughout our relationship? Like as part of that, you know, has that mirrored the journey that I've been on, like in becoming a sexual health educator or like what, what's going on now? What's what's come up for you? I think, well, Frig, let's, I don't, I don't think we need to just jump right into me. I feel like people need to understand a little bit of context for you. Mm. Um, so when Leah and I first got together, um, she was, uh, folks, how do I say this? Uh, a shell of what she is today. <laughs> um, and I don't think that I necessarily had anything to do with her, her transformation over the years, but like, I, I think uh, if there was a person who em embodied uh, the term late bloomer, uh, you are like the poster <laughs> child for that. Um, and I think I recognize that. I give, I give myself a little pat on the back for like recognizing, uh, you know, the diamond in the rough per se. Oh, uh, yeah, it was so rough. But yeah, you were also what? I was 22. You were 21 when we got together. Yeah. And you and I had already been like in acting school for three years. I was very concerned about my public image. I was trying to become a famous actor. So I was like incredibly aware of like how I was presenting to the world, what I was putting online, trying to, you know look a certain way and you absolutely were not you wore like half your clothes was like i don't know hand-me-downs from your brother or something <laughs> and like the photos of you online were just like shot with a potato and like <laughs> you're on the side of a highway in one of the shots like there was no glamorization of the beauty that you held in that time of your life mm -hmm. you you didn't have that like sense of self that I mm. could sort of perceive and it has been really inspiring to see over the years you mature into that and do I think education is a part of that absolutely do I think life experience is a part of that absolutely do I think that having a really good looking partner that constantly is obsessed with you. I, I think that has a huge part to do with it. I, you know, I, I wouldn't discount Just worshiping me. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I'm not a part of this, obviously. Um, but no, you've you've like come leaps and bounds, and like I think I have like struggled to keep up because mm -hmm. you are so tenacious and so nonstop in your desire to learn about this. Like I, I think yes, it's like your career now like you've made a career out of sexual health um but like it's it's very much a part of who you are i think like i i think that this hits pretty deep for you on a, on a psychological level on a personal level um and and you've applied a whole bunch of your skills like you as a as a researcher as somebody who's curious about things who's highly highly empathetic and thoughtful of other people's lived experiences and how that goes. I mean, this is all coming together. Like you've just, you're, you're always kind of like evolving into this, like, you know, new formula, like those Pokemon where they like go from, you know, the little Diglett <laughs> to like, well, no, the, when are they a Charizard? What, what, what's uh, Charizard's my favorite or Squirtle. Is that yeah. The one? Yeah. You're a Squirtle. Come on. Let's a be squirtle. honest. And I mean, then you turn into Blastoids. So that's also pretty good. Like, hilarious. That's an apt, like sexual yeah. health. Yeah. Water. Thing, right. Let's yeah, go. <laughs> moisturized um 
yeah and uh yeah so you're you're i don't know if you're full blastoids yet my my prediction is is like in your 40s you'll hit like full blastoids and you'll be you'll like i don't i don't know there's like a term for that in pokemon it's like evolutions or something you're like you're like pokemon nerds tell us what it is we don't uh (laughs) clearly we we don't know we know enough to banter but (laughs) yeah you're so yeah you've gone full blastoids or you're going to go full blastoids and and i think that that's very few people i think have the resources the time the education and the willingness to do that kind of deep learning and that like really difficult but incredibly powerful work that it takes to like really think about what you truly want like what what you actually want, what you mm. actually desire, not what society has told you that you want, not what you have, you know, sort of created in your head is what you think you should be. Like you're you're very um, endlessly curious about yourself and totally willing to go down that road, which I don't think many people are. So I'm like trying to keep up, but like has that been intimidating for you? For sure, yeah. No, it's it's like I, I think if you liken it to to sort of like a sports analogy um you know like when you're when you're all playing uh it's it's like fun there's like a certain amount of like oh well it's like you know there's there's the social and the um camaraderie aspect of you and i going through the world and like learning things and like wow this is so great um but then there's times where like you are so endlessly curious and i'm not as curious mm. you know like this isn't my thing I, i'm no. not like but i'm going to practice three days a week and exactly you're coming to my games on saturday it totally like it like you and i were it, it probably at a, a similar level when we first started dating and then you know we got married and things you know sort of evolved and i felt like we were kind of we we're we we're just merrily prancing along hand in hand into this new horizon and uh you know getting your sexual health educator training was like a huge step and Mm -hmm. you know talking on this podcast with experts was like a huge step and then it just seems like every day like you're just deepening your understanding of this crazy world and i'm like right yeah um so like do you have like a spark notes (laughs) Like, is there like a like a, some sort of uh, breakdown I can read through? I feel like you spent a lot of that time building me up, like talking, which which is amazing. But I feel like has been our relationship for the last, you know, almost eight years. But I'm I'm wondering now, and I'm reflecting, like I kind of want to describe what I have seen as your journey, but I don't want Whoa. to. Uh, I, I'll give you. don't want to build me up. I get I it. I, I don't. I don't need it. I got. I got enough ego. You know. You don't, you don't need the don't building need... <laughs> up. But I. I guess I. What I. What I want to say about that, and then I want to get your response to it, is, you know, we've talked about before how we came to this relationship with different strengths and different areas that we needed to work on. Maybe we didn't know that we needed to, but we. We clearly we we did need to work on certain aspects mm. of ourselves, right? And that was me taking up space, finding my voice, and it was you learning to listen and to empathize a bit more, right? And so, and decentering yourself, whereas centering me. And I think that was kind of our our shift. But I think in in many ways, uh, you know, we we have this this phrase that we use where, you know, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, ourselves, you're like, no, are, are, are they a generous lover if you're thinking mm. about someone else? And so I feel like you have fully embodied what it means to be a generous lover over the last few years of 
thinking deeply about, you know, what would bring you pleasure? How do I kind of push this forward? Like, let's try this thing or let's do. So you've become very responsive and generous in that way, which I think is directly linked to the decentering of yourself. I think so often when it comes to sexual experiences, we think, what am I doing? How am I performing? Like, how do I look in this position as opposed to really focusing on the person or people that we're having sex with? And once you get in, attuned to what their body is doing, what are, what are they telling you that they are really enjoying? Your journey in that way, like, I feel very proud that you are, like, I don't know if people are listening. Ama- Levi is an amazing lover. And it's just like, wow, it's nice. Like, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be very proud that we have gone on that journey together. And of course, it's not just like about sex, obviously. It's about in, in many ways, what is it? What does it mean to be a generous lover? It means supporting the person that you're with and the goals that they yeah, have. And it's a metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. So is that how you would see that trajectory for yourself? Like, was it a bit scary kind of especially being an only child, going through becoming, trying to become an actor, and then the transition to really caring about the environment and the planet and still using those skills in the YouTube channel. But you are slowly decentering yourself every day. And I think that's something that we need in the world, more white men decentering themselves. But yeah, what does that, is that like aligning with how you're feeling your sexual evolution has, has happened? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of my time becoming as self-centered as possible. Um from I don't know, birth to uh probably like my mid 20s, I was just trying as hard as possible to make myself the center of everything. And that was out of you know, um habits and routines and attachment styles that I developed over the course of my life. Like I I'm an only child, as you mentioned. You know, I'm the favorite child of all of my cousins, you know, and all oh, <laughs> your cousins aren't listening. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, uh, no, and I'm I'm joking, but I'm sort of not. Like I I've I've gone out of my way to uh, you know, become the center of attention. And uh you were the first no, you weren't the first person. All, all, all of my significant partners throughout my life, I have gone out of my way to center them in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there was more of like a selfish need in some of those earlier relationships, you know, wanting them to center me in theirs as sort of reciprocation to mm. still retain the center of attention. You're the center of something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just wanted to be the center of something at all times. Um and uh yeah i think i think like on a romantic interpersonal sexual level that impacted um my life as well like i i i do think that if you are constantly thinking about yourself you just lack so many of the skills to um you know enjoy and create a fulfilling intimate relationship with another person and you definitely going through your journey and, you know, constantly creating the environment in which we had to question that and and analyze that has been massive for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would think as a, as a result, it's improved my life in a bunch of measurable ways. Like now we're working on future proof and I'm negotiating every day with five different people. And I, I think that my work that I've done personally in this relationship has has laddered into so many other aspects of my life my relationship with my parents 
uh, has become so much better since we uh, have have started dating. Not because you were like be nicer to your parents, but like I saw the way that you interacted with your parents as a highly empathetic person who has um, a strong relationship with your family and your friends. And I was like, huh, that's a thing that I would like to be able to do in my life. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I think we've we've always had contrasting skill sets, contrasting personalities. And um, I think it's, I don't know if I would ever have been able to be where I'm at today if I did not have the mirror that is you to to constantly be like, what would Leah do in this circumstance, you know, and then watching you interact with people and and seeing, well, I would never do that, um, <laughs> you know, and vice versa. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to get you to put on, now that you've basically said how much you've evolved, this highly evolved mm. human being, so yep. aware, so empathetic, uh, yep. we're going to take another question, and I'm interested to get your take on this. This is from a male listener. Um, and they actually, the first episode that they ever listened to to the podcast was the last one that we did back in May mm. about can you trust a bisexual partner? So they said that they really enjoyed it, and they have a couple of, of questions. I want to give you a little bit of background on them. They said, uh, I have questioned and repressed my sexuality for most of my life, uh, but over the years have become more comfortable with it. I still don't know what I identify as, but lean towards being a bi male with hetero romance. Uh, I'm married to a woman who I recently came out to. We've been married for 11 years, and I just now feel comfortable with myself and her to talk about it. Uh, they both grew up in church families, historically not been supportive of anything other than heterosexual relationships. That's a whole other context. Uh, but there's this resistance to discussing their sexuality open um, openly in their relationship. So now that he has come out to her, she is feeling kind of jealous and insecure. They're going to go see a counselor, thank goodness. But, you know, how would he navigate this? He says, I love my wife and I have no desire to leave her. Um, and the last kind of things that he says is, since my early teens, I've enjoyed playing with toys anally and orally, but no real experience with a penis, but I would really like to try. I don't find that I am or have ever been attracted to a man, just penis, and I have no desire to be in a relationship with a man. How is that defined? And like he, he kind of wanted like a bi-male perspective, but we're talking, you're the closest bi-male-ish person that I could have in my home. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm interested to know, like... I guess for me, they've been together 11 years and he's just now coming out to her about his um, sexual interests and um, orientation and identity. Like, what What are your thoughts around that? I don't know. That's that's tough. Um, 11 years uh, without that amount of communication just creates so many um barriers, sadly, like um, in, in all the, the stuff that we've gone through together personally I, i'm always always like kind of shocked to realize how much of the s difficult stuff that we would have to go through was hidden mm. so you, you don't really ever know what is going to be challenging like he, he came out to her and that's that's gonna be hard obviously yeah. and she's not taking it well mm -hmm. uh, and and the thing is is that the more that you go down that path you, you you're forced to go through 11 years of backed up documents that you haven't properly organized and you haven't been sorting through as you go along it's like doing your taxes if you mm -hmm. do them as you go along when something comes up and you need to actually 
use them for what they're there for, they're they're going to be a lot harder to sort through. So I wonder if it's almost a way of not like tainting those memories, but I can imagine, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be that wife, you know, after being married for 11 years. I don't know how long they were together before that, but been together a significant amount of time to then kind of recalibrate those years that you've had together mm. being like, was he lying to me the whole time? Totally. Has he been dissatisfied with our sex life this whole time? And yeah. I feel like there's almost that that grief of that period of their life before this, that that's probably harder to reconcile, which again, you tell people communicate even about these really hard things because having to unpack 11 years of a relationship and feeling like yeah. you didn't actually know your partner, I feel like that would be a lot harder to to start from. Absolutely. Um, when you and I first started to sort of experiment with thirds and, you know, uh, opening up our relationship in that way, the, my one of the biggest hurdles that I think I experienced, and, and this is only on a, like a small level, is like we, we aren't the same anymore. Like you, you create a, a balance with your partner. And that balance takes work. There's so much time and energy and and passion and, you know, grief that goes into creating like a, a, a sense of calm and stability in a, in a relationship between two people. And when you reach moments like this where one partner wants something that is uncomfortable or at least just like a, a new thing it forces you to question and consider the whole relationship up until that point. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was really hard for me because I'm a very long-term thinker. I, mm -hmm. I, I think about things rarely in the moment. I am never present. I am always <laughs> like, well, what does this mean for us five years down the road? Or, you know, uh, so I can understand where she's coming from. As, as like this being sort of an assault on everything that they have built over the last 11 years. Um, but I also recognize that uh, the damage is sort of done mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Like once you come out to your partner, you, you risked basically the biggest thing, which is them saying, well, I will now leave you mm -hmm. and this is over. That's like the worst case scenario. So if you stage it back from that worst case scenario to somewhere in the middle, which is where the more likely response is actually going to be. Um, it's just going to take work because if you don't work on this and you don't actively communicate about it and you don't go to therapy and you don't try and work through this together, it just breeds so many other problems. Mm -hmm. You know, you can start thinking about and processing things and all of these like very difficult subjects without the education that you bear as a sexual health educator mm -hmm. are just black voids of anxiety, fear, and all of your deepest insecurities. You're, you mm -hmm. will never get through that if you just try and ignore that it exists or try and compartmentalize it as best as possible. I think you really need to you, you've now started the, the train in motion. You need to mm -hmm. just follow it through to its logical end. You know, maybe that end is, one of you is unwilling to do this and yeah, it, it ends the relationship. That That's the worst case scenario. Yeah. But there's a lot of other scenarios along the way. There's a lot of other things that it could become um, if you're willing to sit down and do the work. Yeah, but I think 
like you were saying, it's not getting lost in the hypotheticals of like, well, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. It's like, well, we need to sit down and talk about mm. where we're at right now so yeah. then we can move forward. And then instead of being overwhelmed by all of these different things that, you know, him coming out to her could mean, it's okay, what does this mean yeah. right now for our relationship? That's a great point. And, you know, I just – I. I'm lost in terms of like language. Like sometimes it's it's hard to pinpoint someone else's identity, right? It's hard to pinpoint our own identities because they're fluid. Like that that happens throughout our lives. And so how he described himself as, you know, um, bisexual, like sexually maybe attracted to men, but as he said, mainly just the penis um, or – and then they're heteroromantic. But that can be hard to parse out because we have linked together – you know, romance, romantic relationships mm. and intimacy with our sexual relationships. And so trying to take that out to say, you know, in our like marriage that they're talking about, this this isn't threatening that. This is a different sexual desire or fantasy that I have, which is around a penis. I will say that if you do decide to have sex with someone with a penis, hopefully you're having a conversation with them as a whole human being and mm. not just their penis. Yeah. Um, yeah, but being really open about what those boundaries are, about saying like, you know, this is maybe on on my sexual bucket list, you know, to, to yeah. do this. Uh, but trying to create that safe environment, really, you're going to have to, before a penis comes anywhere near you and your penis near another penis or whatever else, like, you're going to need to do that emotional labor of what does this mean for this relationship? And can you and your partner separate the romantic, um, intimate relationship that you've built from these sexual experiences which you desire? I'll also say, though, there's a huge privilege piece in here where there are some researchers who say that people who, you know, enter into non-monogamy or polyamory and all of that, that that is a privileged space. You have to have the time totally. to think about this or the resources to buy the books, to read them, to maybe go to therapy and all of these other things. It's like... It's not that anyone, anyone could be non-monogamous, of course, but it is really steeped in these, these socioeconomic layers that we have. Completely. Because, you know, if, if you're a working nine to five, you have two jobs, you have kids, like whatever else, you don't have time to no, do that deep no. work on yourself. I, I think that, that that's, I think, why so many people have uh, such a difficult time with polyamory. Because, like... There is the, uh, an unfortunate sort of assumption that if you're bisexual, then you're also non-monogamous, like you can't be satiated by just one person, etc. Um, but there is sort of an implied curiosity about this other side of yourself. And if you've been married for 11 years and you are interested in having sex with somebody of the same gender, then that there's kind of like a, a, a thing that needs to be explored you know, so for the partner who's like, oh, wow, you're bi now, I guess. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means something's got to give. Like you you can't you're, – you're either denying one person's sexual desires or you're denying another person's, uh, you know, comfort. And mm -hmm. so you have to like find that middle ground and that's like – yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. But it's not impossible. And um, I think the, the non-monogamy world, if you are capable of it, you know, if you have the resources and the education and the time to dedicate to learning about it and a partner who's willing to do that, mm -hmm. um, 
can be really fruitful. You know, it, it can be really exciting. We've we've had a pretty wild time, you know, <laughs> learning about this whole process. But it it doesn't work if both aren't into it. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, Dan Savage calls it poly under duress, where, mm. where there's one partner or partners who's really into it and the other one isn't. And so yeah. that's – I think there's also a tricky line where I have talked about this, you know, in, in – um, recent podcast with Dr. Amy C. Moores or with Cassandra Heap about how there's an unfortunate thing in non-monogamy where compromise, you know, it, absolutely, you have to compromise in any relationship. But when it comes to non-monogamy, you can get into really tricky territory where if you're saying, oh, you're feeling jealous or you're feeling insecure or whatever, you just need to work through that in order to like fully be non-monogamous. Like this is your own personal stuff to deal with. Mm-hmm. But then how does that impact each other's boundaries? Right. So non-monogamy doesn't mean a free for all. Nobody has boundaries. If anything, there are there are more boundaries. There are more levels of communication that need to be built up. But that can be tricky. Right. Because you want to say, oh, well, why am I feeling jealous? I need to just like work through this. If I was truly polyamorous, I wouldn't feel this way. And you're like, well, that's not actually how that works. But that's some real nuanced emotional things to unpack about yourself i think that's the hardest thing to to grasp is that you there's it's like you can't say one is wrong because if the person who is not willing to be or non-monogamous just doesn't want to do it like say for Mm -hmm. example this this, the female in this scenario she's just like i don't want to deal with it yeah, I'm, I, we, we're, we're going to have kids or we have kids or my parents are sick or there's all these other things happening in my life. And I just don't want to deal with this. This is too much for me. Mm-hmm. It's incorrect and it's not a safe and healthy way for, for him to say, well, I want to do it. So I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. So but at the same time, then he is forgiving or giving up his sort of desires and there's there is always a compromise somewhere in there i think mm-hmm. but yeah like the, there's it's it's difficult to think like okay there is sort of an ultimatum here right you know because for some people it might be an ultimatum mm-hmm. and and you have to figure out for yourself where that ultimatum lies at what point on this journey is it too much well, hopefully it's not necessarily an ultimatum. It's a how do we slowly have these conversations knowing that it's going to evolve, right? And also yeah. knowing, I think that can be a difficult thing as well, is that our boundaries evolve over time. Yeah. I'm saying if it's at the very beginning, I need this, this, and this from you in order for me to feel safe. Yeah. And to if you have it in that language, instead of being like, you need to do this, you need to do that, it says, no, in order for us to go on this experience together – this is what we need to mm-hmm. still have that stability in what we're doing. And that can be really hard, but also knowing that those boundaries might shift and change over time. And the unfortunate reality with with polyamory and non-monogamy is too often we find out what those boundaries are once we have already crossed them. Mm. And someone is feeling vulnerable and hurting and then needs to, you know, needs that time and space to connect in. So it's a lot of yeah, emotional work and labor that hopefully I'm glad to hear that this listener is going to go to a counselor, like someone who is specifically trained, like yeah. a sex positive, like therapist, but knowing that like, that's not a reality for a lot of people to be able to oh do that. No. Um, and also just as an aside, we are not sex therapists. We're not giving you therapy advice right now. No, Let's be very no, clear. Thank God. Sexual educator, YouTuber here. That's not, uh, 
we can tell you as much as we know. I think we know a decent amount, but not therapists here. Nope. Yeah. What's that thing? Not a doctor. But there you go. Not a <laughs> not a therapist. Not a therapist. Right. Uh, I have I have one more question that I want to play for you, talking specifically about boundaries, uh, and then we'll get ask you a question about you know us being married. So I'm gonna play this for you. Hi, Dr. Tidy and fellow listeners of the Love Doctor podcast. So I recently ran into a situation and I was hoping you could provide some insight on it. Basically, I was seeing a guy who asked me two weeks into getting to know each other if I'm on birth control and if I would get an abortion if I got pregnant. He proceeded to tell me that he always asks the woman he's seeing these two questions before getting intimate with them or continuing the relationship. He also clarified that he only continues to see or get intimate with the women who say yes to both of these questions. He told me that he asks these questions because he does not want to be a father now or before he is ready. He said that from his perspective, asking these questions is about communication and setting boundaries. He believes that the women who say yes to both these questions are on the same page as him, which makes them compatible. When I told him that I don't know what I'd do if I were to unexpectedly become pregnant, he started to freak out and said that we may need to rethink things. I ended up telling him that I do not want to continue seeing him because his line of questioning made me feel uncomfortable and honestly a little unsafe. I also felt that the questions he was asking did not come from a caring or considerate place. Anyway, after talking about this experience with some friends who were also a bit baffled by it, I'm still left with a couple questions about the ethics of asking people with uteruses if they're on birth control and if they would get an abortion if they unexpectedly became pregnant. Furthermore, framing it in a manner in which the continuation of the relationship depends on the person with the uterus saying yes to both. Is this setting boundaries or is this an ultimatum about someone else's decisions over their own body? I would not think of asking a person with a penis to get a vasectomy because I don't want to get pregnant right now. Also, is this a verbal contract that infringes upon bodily autonomy of the person in the relationship with the uterus? And do these questions reflect societal beliefs about what people with uteruses can do with their body or that other people should have a say in what they can or can't do? I mean, if someone were to become unexpectedly pregnant, there's a lot more options than just the two that he mentioned. You know, I understand that the guy I was seeing did not want to be a parent before he's ready, but neither do I. So why do I have to bear all of the responsibility by committing to birth control and getting an abortion? I also don't think there's a point asking this question because it's hypothetical, and I don't believe a lot of people would 100% know what they would do. Maybe in today's society, people with penises are being pushed to bear more responsibility in unplanned pregnancies than historically and maybe this is creating more anxiety within them. I'm not really sure, but if this is partly the case for some people, I think this anxiety should be used to advocate for birth control for people with penises instead of putting more pressure on people with uteruses. Either way, I'm still not sure if it's ethical or considerate to ask people with uteruses if they get an abortion because it's a complicated, triggering, and even dangerous topic for some people, or a lot of people with uteruses. Thank you for listening. I'm really looking forward to hearing your conversation about this. And thanks for all that you do. So that's a lot to unpack in that question. So mm. initial thoughts, what's coming up for you around, you know, this person very clearly two weeks into dating someone, like, what's the deal? Like, are you on birth control? And would you get an abortion if you got pregnant? Well, I, I, I do think that it's communication 
which I think is better than this coming up later without any conversation having been had. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that perhaps the way in which it was communicated was not great. (laughs) It sounds like, and and the, the caller said that it didn't feel like it was coming from a place of like concern about that person. It came from like a, you know, I really don't want this to happen. But even if they communicated that in a way of like deep caring, do you think it's still okay to ask someone before you have some sort of, you know, procreative sex with them, reproductive sex, that, you know, if we have sex with each other, if you get pregnant, you're going to get an abortion. Is that ever okay? Well, if you say it like that, no. No, but it's if they said it in a kind way. <laughs> okay, let's, I, I, let's reframe. Well, yeah, that, but that's what I mean. It's like there's – it's – the way you say anything is more important than what you actually say. If you say, I'm fine, or you say, I'm fine. There's two fundamentally different sentence, two fundamentally different meanings. Yeah. And if you say, hey, listen, I, I've, I've had scares in the past. I ask every partner that I've ever had whether or not they're on birth control and whether or not they are on board with the concept of abortion. Mm-hmm. That's very reasonable ground setting. I feel like that's very clearly articulating A, fears and insecurities that you have, and B, boundaries that you hope to uphold in a relationship. I think it's very strong communication skills for, you know, entering into a pretty serious thing with another human being. But. But. Go ahead. You can't place it as a condition upon the success of the relationship. Because what if that person says, well, I come from a religious family. My belief is that any child that is whatever conceived in my body is is going to come to term or whatever it is. That Maybe there's a context in which that person then goes, okay, well seems like we disagree, but is there a way that we can kind of meet in the middle on this? How would you meet in the middle on this, though? I mean, you change the type of sex that you have. I would think so. Yeah, you could have lots of different types of sex that wouldn't result with the sperm or the egg coming anywhere near each other. Lots of fun things you can do in the meantime. But I guess for me, I need to separate it out because the birth control conversation, I agree with you. I think having that strong communication, are you on some form of birth control contraception? I don't think you can say, um, you know, you should be on this form. But I also think as someone who has a uterus and who has had to negotiate different forms of contraception people before, I think it's very reasonable to say, hey, um, I really want to have sex with you, but not without a condom. I think that's a reasonable thing to say to yeah. someone because that's about your own your own health and the things that will make you feel safe and comfortable in that sexual setting. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that when it comes to contraception, that if two or more people are enjoying the sex that is happening and someone is on that contraception, that both parties should be paying for that contraception. So mm-hmm. it should be a conversation of like, okay, like if, if we are buying condoms, who's buying the condoms? Are we going 50-50? Whichever. But the the bit about abortion, I think is such a contentious issue because – I think we can have an understanding of what that might look like of being like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I would I would be fine getting an abortion because I'm at a point in my life where I don't want to have a kid or I have access to resources to make that happen where I would feel safe, you know, to to have that procedure done. But things might change. 
and you don't know how you're going to feel about that situation until you are in it. So to me, it it almost feels disingenuous. So even if, you, you know, if say if you and I were having this conversation, you said, yeah, like, uh, I really, you know, want to be intimate with you, but I, you know, if we do get pregnant, I want to know that you get an abortion. I could say yes and full-heartedly, like wholeheartedly mean that to you. Mm-hmm. But then if I get pregnant, I might change your mind. I might change my mind. Yeah. So I, I think, again, it just comes back to intention. Like th- clearly this guy, based on the way that the caller described it, uh, just sounded defensive. Mm. Like it just sounded like there was like he didn't say this, but basically he said, look, I knocked up some chick. She didn't want to have an abortion. It turned into this crazy thing. It was really dramatic. And I was a very negative experience. And now I have this chip on my shoulder because of this thing that happened to me. Mm -hmm. He's not thinking about her. He's thinking about himself. Yeah. And that's the problem. And Mm -hmm. so once again, like all of these things can be communicated. You can say things to another human that society would say are very wrong to say to them. But if you say them in a way that you are being very deliberate and thoughtful about your own feelings and their own feelings and you're communicating openly and being willing to invite the no, (laughs) then there's, there's so many ways for that to blossom from there. This could have been a very productive conversation. Well, it could have like to have that level of open communication before you have any sexual experiences with each other. Mm-hmm. That's amazing because I think so often we don't actually have these conversations until we are already in that situation where it's like, yeah. oh, shit, I'm late or, you know, oh, I think I might have an STI or something like we're mm-hmm. we're not taught to, you know, front load these conversations before we have sex with someone so in some ways i'm like okay so he's demonstrating he's a strong communicator however we live in a patriarchal society where women's autonomy and folks with uteruses autonomy over our bodies is something that we are constantly fighting for like even now to this day we are Mm -hmm. fighting for even you know right here in north america north america yeah all over the world baby so to me, it just sparked something as someone who has a uterus and clearly is very passionate about reproductive justice that you cannot say that to a person. And and even if he has his own personal feelings about, I really don't want to be a parent at this time, like that's something that I'm not ready for, mm-hmm. we still live in a patriarchal and colonial society so how do you get outside of that like we have both been socialized if it's a man and a woman talking to each other that there's always going to be a power imbalance so right but now let's flip the script if this was something that a woman was was saying to a man you know what would that be abortion obviously you can't you can't replicate that in the other situation but being like you know i'm not going to have sex with you unless you have a vasectomy right so what, what I, mean, I don't know, I, what would that be? I think once again, like, how did uh, the caller respond? Like, if he said, hey, I asked this to everybody, these are my two conditions, and she went, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. That's messed up. Why the hell would you ask me that? That's absurd. Do you understand that people with ovaries all over the world are constantly told what they're supposed to do with their bodies, and you just asked me to do that? And there's people in Texas who can't even get an abortion, and- laid out the facts to him in a very aggressive way yeah 
that's probably not going to be a productive conversation. But, but still a valid however, response. However, a valid response, but not a productive one. Mm-hmm. If you understand that not everyone is a sexual health educator, <laughs> if you understand that most people get their information off of Facebook, mm-hmm. and you... And you try and understand this person's perspective before responding with your emotional reaction. There's room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. When somebody's anxious, uh, paranoid, emotional, angry, rarely do they articulate themselves well. Mm-hmm. This is clearly an issue for this man. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this is something that has been going on for him. He is not articulating this well, but perhaps. With a contextual conversation in which some more of this um, reasoning can be teased out, mm-hmm. you might learn that this was that he lost, a, you know, like there, this abortion was really serious and perhaps his partner died during the operation or something. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, maybe he doesn't have the emotional intelligence and the, and the depth to articulate that properly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, especially with abortion and things that are so dramatic, like, we're always trying to, like, prove something. Mm-hmm. We're always trying to become right in these moments, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to your own personal body and your yeah. own feelings and, and things that are really, really serious. This is really, really serious stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, th- maybe this guy's just a dickhead. But, like, I think in particular, as a person who puts his foot in his mouth all the time, that there is value in putting your foot in your mouth and being willing to say that you put your foot in your mouth. If this guy said that thing, mm-hmm. caller responds and says, okay, um, that makes me really uncomfortable because of these reasons. And he said, all right, um shit, I'm sorry, I, I didn't, like, I'm not saying that you have to do this or else I'll never talk to you again. This is more so what I meant. Mm-hmm. It's a completely co- different conversation. Yeah. This conversation doesn't go to all the friends where you hash it out and decide that this guy's kind of crazy. There's, there's, you know, there's more. If you're speaking in tweets at each other, you're never going to get to the base of the problem, you yeah. know? And I, I think that that's... I'm always hesitant to to sort of like side with one person or another without mm-hmm. actually having been there because, mm-hmm. you know, this is a highly educated young woman who's called into your podcast. She knows a lot about this stuff. Yeah. The guy who called, who she's talking about probably doesn't listen to your podcast. No, probably not. And so he doesn't have, he's not as educated. He just simply does not have the language. And. <laughs> Sorry. Bless you. <laughs> And so anyway, I don't want to rant on forever, but like, yeah, you know, especially with, you know, contentious issues that have a lot of context like this, I think those who are educated Mm -hmm. in these things do have some heavy lifting to do to meet people where they're at. I think it's hard when it's something that, as you said, is such a deeply emotional and vulnerable thing to talk about, right? And as you said, is so contentious. And so when you do get a response from someone, and this is something that I've said before, you know, if someone is coming out to a partner, they want to open up the relationship, like they're having these difficult conversations about sex in general, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, that quite often when you say that to a person, their first response, their first response 
might not actually be how they feel about exactly. it, but they're having a gut re- reaction totally. to it. And I get it. You, you've been seeing this guy for like two weeks. And I mean, you know, you say that you decided you're not going to see him anymore. This is more of a, of a, you know, a thought experiment that, that mm-hmm. we're on. But again, two weeks, like how well do you know someone at two weeks? Exactly. But there are lots of folks um, who are hooking up without ever having these conversations. And totally. like power to them. If that's like totally what you're in for, that's great. But I do wonder if it was normalizing having that level of vulnerable and intimate conversation with someone about something that is so contentious. I mean, the level of intimacy that could arise from that Mm -hmm. could be really amazing. Yeah, it could be really interesting. It could be. I I will say, sexual health educator in me, just to make sure that when we're talking about abortion, to combat all of the the shit that we hear about abortion. I've heard this even in like middle schoolers who are like, how does abortion work? Do they have to like, you know, break the bodies, break the body of the baby to get it out of the uterus? I've literally had a child ask me that. And I just want to say that uh, here in Canada and a lot of places around the world, it is much safer. That's something called MIFI, Mifigaimiso. So you can either take a pill, one at the doctor's office and one at home. It feels like a, like a really bad period cramp. And sometimes you do have to go in and get an operation done. It is fairly low risk. So I just want people to know that, that mm-hmm. obviously this is something that is is impacting your body, but yeah, there's a lot of misinformation around like it's going, you're never going to be able to have another baby again, or you're, yeah. you're going to get sick. You're going to die from this operation. That's very, very unlikely. Um, not all of us live in places where you can legally access it. So it can get, you know, the more that we know that when it becomes illegal, you know, folks with uteruses die because they are put in desperate situations. So I just think that's really important to to put out there as well. And of course, I always have links in the episode description to more information. Okay, so that's a heavy topic for us to, nice. to get into. So the last thing I want to I want to talk to you, kind of kind of related to that, is um, the other day I got my IUD taken out, and I'm going to do the last episode of this season. I'm going to answer all of callers sending your questions about why did I get my IUD taken out? What is that going to look like now? And we had we had sex for the first time, the first time ever in our relationship, because I have had an IUD since I was 19 years old. Uh, we're not going to talk about the sex itself, but emotionally, <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was really hot. But what what was that like for you? Was it kind of scary? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I never kind of related to, like, I know that people have fear and they have... Um, you know, sexual issues when it comes to, you know, pregnancy scares. Like people mm-hmm. just genuinely can like have real issues enjoying sex generally because of that. And I was mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? I've never had that fear in my life. And I think it's because looking back on it, all of my long-term partners have been on, uh, have had IUDs or some kind of very proven uh, birth control method like a reliable method that's highly yeah. effective yeah and right? and and so i have very rarely used condoms with my partners because we were in long-term relationships and i've never really worried about anything like that and yeah like for the first time it was like holy smokes like we like like this is we're flying pretty close to the sun here like <laughs> playing I, with fire yeah it was uh it was interesting it, it changed the dynamic in some ways like more intimate mm. and like weirdly kind of erotic well because there is something 
we know that we want to have children together. Not quite yet, but that knowing that that level of like intimacy, we're literally going to like create life together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something very arousing about that for me as someone who is approaching the age where my body is literally like, oh, I want a baby so bad. Like it's, you know, something about that was very erotic. Mm-hmm. But also like that element of fear is also highly arousing mm-hmm. for, for some people, right? So was that kind of what was going through your brain? I know we had a few moments. We were like looking deeply into each other's eyes and I was like, wow, this is like very intimate. And I'm also like, how we do it, like where are you at? Because we we got you can't just yeah, and now we gotta figure out go. like we gotta use condoms again. <laughs> oh my god! Condoms come in all shapes and sizes. They can be really great to use. I want to normalize using condoms as well. Condoms oh no, are uh, condoms are very functional, but when you've not used them for ten years, yeah, you know, I feel like I'm putting training wheels back on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make putting on the condom something that is sexy? I, I know. Mean, like, that's a I great know. question. And if, I have uh, no idea. People listening, there's 10 steps to putting on a condom effectively, just so you know. Oh, good. But, well, uh, let's just implement 10 steps of something <laughs> in the middle of having sex. Yeah. Step seven is the actually like having the sex with the condom on. So there's uh, six steps that lead up to before that actually happens. How did they think that was sexy? They're like, hey, you know what will help condom use? Let's create a 10-step plan for people <laughs> to use condoms most people really will only use a three-step plan open the condom put on the condom throw out the condom right that's basically it wait they don't even use it no they might use it no i said oh yeah put it on putting it on sorry four steps use the condom (laughs) put it on roll it on (laughs) yeah you just put it on then you take right off again Uh, that that it helps right it captures it right yeah no so i mean cleanup is going to be easier but i also yeah i think i think about that as well where we're at the point in in our lives where if I were to get pregnant, that we are going to have that child. Because that's what we've decided that we want to do. Um, But for a long time, if we had, if this had happened, if I had taken my OD out for other reasons earlier on and say we were 24, 25, um, finishing our degrees, me going to grad school, I think I would have seriously considered an abortion because it wouldn't have been the right time for us mm-hmm. uh, it would have been harder certainly for sure i think we're, we're now at the point where basically any time is fine like yeah. we, we have some things that we would like to accomplish and do and and still see as you know untethered uh people mm-hmm. but yeah no it's uh we're we're kind of open to it now yeah but it's it's scary though But what are you going to do? Like, what's this process going to look like for the content you're going to create around, like, this journey? I mean, I was thinking about this last fall when I did those interviews with Crystal Kennings, who's a good friend of ours, menstrual wellness educator. And she was talking about learning about her cycle. You know, what are days where you're higher energy or lower energy? And, you know, how long is your period lasting? And I'm like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm nodding along. I'm like, I haven't had a reliable period since I was 19 years old. So it's been almost 11 years and I want to know what's going on with my body. Like my body has still been ovulating this whole time that the the hormonal ID doesn't stop ovulation, but you don't really get a period. Most people don't get a period after that first year. So I want to know, you know, what does that look like? I have a couple of ovulation kits here and I also have pregnancy kits. Like I want to know what's going on with my body. And I wouldn't typically 
promote fertility awareness method as um, your first line approach for people as their contraception choice. But because we're at the point now where if we were to get pregnant, that like that's that's something that we're planning for anyway. So I kind of want to know, like I want to get the app. I want to know how that's working. And I also mm-hmm. want to see, you know, I've I have had hormones in my body for such a long time. And that's not a detrimental or bad thing. Like a lot of people have fear around that. Um, but I do, it has had an impact on, you know, like my face. I've had acne in the lower part of my face. Like, will that change? Will my mm-hmm. moods be different? Yeah. You know, yeah, I've like, been pretty, I'm already a pretty even keel kind of person. Maybe you're going to go ballistic. <laughs> Maybe you're going to go full blastoids on me now. <laughs> uh, now, now that I use that, I'll yeah, go full yeah, blastoids yeah, on yeah. you. That's, that's what will happen when I get back into evolution. my natural rhythm. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens in my body. And like you said, I'm, I'm endlessly curious about like my body and about sexuality and things in general. So I'm really interested to see what that will look like. Um, I'm nervous though. Like I'm, I think it'll be interesting. I think it's a, a cool, journey that you get to share with people because i think there's a lot of folks out there who are dealing with the same thing you yeah. know oh and then i get to try my menstrual cup for the first time ever tell people how it is i've had so many people send me free menstrual cups i'm like oh no like i don't use these mm-hmm. but now well i don't even know when i'm gonna have my next period but i want to talk to you about that journey that's how i'm gonna finish off uh, this season so yeah, send in your questions. You know how to do it. Voice memo to uh, the Love Doctor Podcast at gmail.com, or you can send me a voice message on Instagram at dr.leotidy. Levi, thank you for talking to me today. I feel like we, we went on a, a bit of a journey, a bit of a saga. Yeah, um, that was wild. Yeah, but I obviously always enjoy talking to you because we do it every day, every all day. day. Mm. Thanks for having me on. Love you. Love you too. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm talking to social media personality, Rachel Leary, all about her new podcast, Rachel Leary Rated R. We also talk about what it's like to date when your job is to literally share your life online. I was featured on the latest episode of her podcast where I answer the most common questions about sexual health. And in the interview that I do with her, we talk about what she has learned in creating a podcast all about adult content and all of the shit that gets thrown at you when you share your life, especially as a woman, online. Now, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leotype. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.